0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 10. 2 Samuel chapter 10. Just a quick review to help us with the context this morning. In chapter 8 of 2 Samuel, David had consolidated his power, so all the people around Israel had been subjugated or subdued. And then in chapter 9, David seeks to show hesed, God's steadfast love and kindness to any remaining descendants of his friend Jonathan. And one is found, a son named Mephibosheth, who is crippled in both feet. And David heaps kindness on Mephibosheth, so much so that Mephibosheth always ate at David's table like one of the king's sons, we read there in chapter 9. Today, in chapter 10, we see rebellion mounting from some of those subjugated peoples. And this happens even though David seeks to show steadfast love and kindness To the new king of the Ammonites, Hanan, whose father had just died. And this new Ammonite king, instead of receiving David's kindness, humiliates the messengers that David sends, literally stinks up the whole situation in verse 6 of chapter 10. Then the Ammonites. Hired some Syrian mercenaries and they put together this huge army that gathered around their capital city of Rabbah, east of the Jordan River. Well, David hears about all this and sends Joab and all of his mighty men to deal with these people. And Joab and his brother Abishai forces their forces make the Syrians and Ammonites flee. But the Ammonites just retreat behind the walls of their capital city. Joab goes home. And then the fleeing Syrians finally stop and gather themselves together again. And then we get on the scene, somebody we rem- should remember from chapter 8 with his great name that's hard to forget. Hadad, Hadad Ezer. And we... See that he sees this as an opportunity to flee to free all the Syrians from David's rule, so he calls in more Syrian troops and even gets a ringer for a commander uh, in an upcoming showdown named named Shobak. So we can tell that already that there's a tremendous uproar of rebellion all the way around all the way around Israel almost. So David gathers all Israel, crosses the Jordan River, and soundly defeats the Syrians at Helam, which is north of the Ammonite capital of Rabbah. Most of this activity is, is in the north part. But this city is, is south of Syrian Damascus, so all the kings that had aligned themselves with or served Hadadiz or knew it was over. They were history. So they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. The footnote that we finally read at the end of this chapter in verse 19 says, So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. You might remember that these chapters showed this kind of joining together, this coalition between Hadad Ezer and the Ammonites from way back. That's the summary. So now, if you're able, would you please stand with me as I read this chapter, chapter 10, from the English Standard Version. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan their Lord, Do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city? And just spy it out and overthrow it. So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return." When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent <coughs> and hired the Syrians of Bethra, and the Syrians of Zobah twenty thousand foot soldiers, and the kings of Mecca with one thousand men, and the men of Tob twelve thousand men, and when David heard of it he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and of Rehob and the men of Tob and Mechah were by themselves in the open country. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men... He put in the charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And Joab said, If the Syrians are too too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And the Lord will do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to the battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. But then or when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. And Hadad-Ezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. They came to Helam with Shobak, the commander of the army of Hadad-Ezer at their head. And when it was told, David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel. And David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen and wounded Shobak, the commander of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of hadad saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now first, let's step back and see how these events fit in the context of the book. This will help. We all know what comes, or you probably know, what comes in chapters 11 and 12 of Second Samuel? David and Bathsheba. Uh, just a note, that is the next chapter coming. It, there won't be a message on David and Bathsheba on Christmas morning. We'll save that one for New Year's. What a way to start. Okay, these wars with Ammon here, serve as the backdrop, the historical backdrop for the whole David and Bathsheba and Uriah fiasco. And that's important to note. We don't find out how it all turns out until chapter 12, uh, verses 26 through 31. Chapter 10 also links up with chapter 9 in a thematic way because we see David desiring to show kindness steadfast love to the new Ammonite king Hanan as he had shown this hesed to Mephibosheth so chapter 10 both points forward and backward but I'm sure that almost every one of you is asking a question right here. How does chapter 10 speak to us? I mean, does chapter 10 have any theological significance at all? Why is it here? Is there anything said here that just speaks to us? Well, yes. This isn't just a story about some foolish young, a foolish young Ammonite king who listens to some bad political device advice, which then leads to this great war and his total subjugation under King David. So this is not a message about, don't be like Hanan. your don't just listen to all your counselors. You'll get in big trouble. That's not the point. This isn't just another account which reveals again in scripture how depraved these Ammonites are. Let me remind you, their history is a wicked one. In 1 Samuel, way back there, 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1 and 2, we learned that the Ammonites were going to gouge out the right eyes, of the men of Jabesh-Gilead. Some of you will remember that story. Before Saul came to their rescue, that's the first and one of the only great things that Saul did, was rescue this town. But the Ammonites were threatening to gouge out their eyes, the men's eyes, if they didn't just go ahead and surrender. In Amos chapter 1, verse 13, there it, we we see that the Ammonites also had done this, ripped open pregnant women to get rid of two generations of the enemy at once. So what Hanan's Ammonites did to David's servants wasn't that unusual. This is par for the course for these people. It was an unmistakable insult but the Ammonites kind of had that kind of reputation. Well, neither is it strange that the Syrians are meddling in everybody else's affairs. Control of a very important commercial highway was at stake in all this. It's called the King's Highway, which ran from Damascus in Syria to in the north to the Red Sea in the South, and again, that was one of the big, the big geographical, political points that we needed to consider here, because collecting tolls from this road was an important, huge part of their economy. While all this was typical, what chapter 10 tells us is that there is something very similar in what goes on here in this chapter and what goes on in response to the Lord's right to rule and that's what we need to see through the details David is God's chosen king a type of the king and how people respond to him, and his kingdom is a picture that tells us something about the responses that always happen to the Lord's right to rule until he comes again to set it all right. So this is really a regional picture of a far greater reality, and we need a New Testament example of this kind of application so I'm just going to read a section from Acts chapter 4 verses 23 through 21 to give you the New Testament picture of exactly this same kind of thing the response of people who hate the king the believers are praying for boldness here when Peter And John were released, remember, from prison. They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said. This is verse 23 and following. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, if you know what psalm this is from, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. you see the connection? They cite in their prayer Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2, and they apply those verses to earthly rulers gathered against the Lord and against his anointed Christ. That's the New Testament. Now, how are you thinking about Hanan and Hadadezer And company. They aren't just filler material stuck here in 2 Samuel. David is God's anointed king here. Hanan and Hadad Ezer and etc. have, quote, raged, plotted in vain, set themselves, gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. This is a prophetic picture in a regional format. Hanan and Hadad Ezer lost And even after the initial loss, Hadad-Ezer has no better sense than to mount another all-out massive assault that we see in verses 15 and 18, which David smashes when he hits them at Helam. What's the point? Something that we need to remember, and we need to see as Scripture Flows and the plan of redemption is revealed. What is that? That in spite of all resistance, in spite of all this hostility, the Davidic king will rule. Ask yourself if you need to hear that. That's our assurance. And boy, do we need to hear that assurance in the day in which we live as we look to the future you know it's easy to say that we believe that because most of us do but how would our day today lives change if we really applied it knowing knowing that the king will rule how does that help us see the battles the terror the questions of life now so let's look especially at first how this chapter begins and then the middle section which surprisingly I don't know if you saw it heard it but it contains some tremendous theology even if this theology came from a source that we don't really expect to hear it coming from. So first, how does this chapter begin? Well, it begins with that word hesed again that's translated kindness in most translations here or loyalty, deal loyal check what yours says but it's the same word and David said I will deal loyally or show kindness with Hanan the son of Nahash because Hanan's father Nahash died and we read here that Nahash dealt loyalty loyally with David we don't know the details of that but that's what he says so we don't know if there was a covenant or a treaty between David and Nahash, but there obviously was some kind of loyalty there, a steadfastness between these two kings. So much so that David wants to express it towards Hanan, his the son. So the question is why has the author shown us David's Hesed, this steadfast love, this kindness, the loyalty? First to Mephibosheth in chapter 9, and now to Hanan in chapter 10. They make a big point of this. This sticks out in the te- in the text. And it's probably surprising to us both times that David would first be loyal to his friend Jonathan and keep his covenant by seeing if he had an heir or a son. He did, Mephibosheth, who was scared to death because he was crippled. And now the new king was ruling. Would he live or would David wipe out the whole family? Well, we see David does a beautiful thing there, do we not? And then we read that he's showing this kindness to this pagan because his father had dealt loyally with David. Well, there's two reasons why the author has shown us this. At least. First is to set a contrast with David's soon-to-be sinful behavior in the very next chapter. Here, David acts kindly and loyally. But what happens in chapter 11? David throws kindness and loyalty to the wind. Here... David's actions are controlled by his covenants, by past commitments. But in chapter 11, David is driven by his lust and his secrets. What a contrast. But we're not in chapter 11 yet. So the question again is, why has the author shown us David's hesed here in chapters 9 and 10? Well, right now, we are seeing David acting kindly and loyally with two different people. One within Israel, Mephibosheth, and one outside of Israel, Nahash's son, Hanan. So what does that mean? Any lessons for us? How about First Thessalonians five verse fifteen? See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. One another within the Christian community first and foremost. Everyone outside the Christian community. Seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Yeah, this speaks to us, does it not? To show this chesed to everyone. We are called to be different because we serve the God and he has called us to himself secondly what about the middle section in this chapter is there some theology here that we need to know and remember in verses 6 through 14 David's army under Joab, (coughs) is caught between the Syrians in the open country and the Ammonites outside their capital gates. They retreated, but they stayed there outside the gates of their city. Remember, in these times, in order to defeat somebody like that, you've got to lay siege to the city where they are. But these guys stayed outside. They didn't go back in. So, Joab and his guys are caught in between them. And this is a huge crisis. Even though the narrative here in the the text is somewhat terse. I mean, it's short. But a lot of times we see that in these descriptions of the battles. It seems clipped. So we must not, even though it is written that way, understate the seriousness of this situation. It is a desperate situation. And what the author seems to focus on in his narrative is the speech that we see David, I mean, Joab, giving to his brother Abishai in verses 9 through 12. So let's look at that again a little closer. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in the charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And Joab said to Abishai, If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I'll come and help you. Be of good courage, And let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. Now look at your text, or listen. What we read is, And may the Lord do what seems good to him. Now, if you didn't know who said this, Joab, this wouldn't bother you at all or it shouldn't. If it does, you've got another issue. But if you know anything at all about Joab, aren't you wondering can I accept what he's saying here? We've already seen in 2 Samuel verses uh, chapters 2 and 3 that Joab is this made of man, made of iron kind of guy, hard as nails vindictive, blood spilling, look out for the number one military man, especially when we see what happened as a result of his little brother being killed, the third brother. And now he's spouting theology. So is this something kind of foxhole type of thing you know God get me out of this and I'll do you a favor no that's not what he's saying here the question really is why allow this really he's, he, he's come across as an unsavory character why allow his unsavory character to, to kind of eclipse the truth of what he's saying Joab's final affirmation here is the Lord will do what seems good to him. This is the best rendering of this. Um, this, this Hebrew sentence is not um, expressed as a hope. May, may, maybe, maybe the Lord will do what seems good to him. That's not the best translation. It's not a question either. It's meant as a statement. It's a declaration, and that's how the grammar works. He's telling Abishai, and and the Lord will do what seems good to him. Be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people. In other words, let's get after it, let's do the best we can. The Lord will do what he thinks is good. Now, let that sink in a second. When faced with any and all of life's uncertainties, which we all would agree are many, this is where the believer stands and what he holds on to about his loyal and steadfast Lord. And as we look at Joab... Telling Abishai this, we see that Joab will do his best in his military calling, which we know is exceptional. The guy's an animal on the battlefield. And that doing his best in this situation means something different, though. It means trusting the Lord with the outcome. Amazing. Amazing which Joab is not at all certain about. He is not telling his guys, we got this. He's telling his guys, we're going to give it everything we have, and we're going to trust the Lord with how it turns out. Does this mean... A lack of faith on Joab's part? Not at all. There is a very important distinction in his words that is an important lesson for everybody today as well. God, here, has not given a specific promise of victory about this particular battle and its result. Have you noticed that? This chapter just comes up. God does not speak and tell him, David, tell him, you've got it, I've got it, just go after him. We've seen that several times. But there is not a specific promise of victory here. Or any explanation or hint about the result. What has God promised that Joab is standing on? This is what we need to learn. What has God promised? That God will never abandon his own. Is that true? And that in the end, God will show that our hope in him was not in vain. Is that true? Those two things that you can stand on, that I can stand on when it is uncertain? Know any Christians that have died in the battlefield? Yes. Know any situations where Christians have suffered and suffered death? Yes. Know any situations that seemed unbelievably abnormal to our lives where Christians died? Yes. He makes no promises that we, were, that we are not vulnerable to death and horrid circumstances in this life. He does promise that he will never abandon us. And he does promise that in the end he will show that our hope and trust in him was not in vain. And there's a lot in there we don't understand. And we don't understand it because we're not God. The result for us is that our faith will not be frustrated when it rests upon his mercy and his truth. How long does it take most of us to learn this? And even when we learn it, we relearn it, and we relearn it, and we relearn it, and we relearn it. The fact of the matter for us is that we must remain in suspense about many things. And you know what? In our day, there has been very little really good written about this in the past, recent past. Because people have gone either, oh, we can't know anything, so God is completely no strength. At all, or just have faith and you will have victory at all, all the time. Well, the truth is in the middle. God leaves us in suspense much of the time. So, when you search in the past, as Christians down through the ages, there has been a lot written about this. Because most Christians down through history have had to face so many uncertain circumstances and have watched so many of their brothers and sisters die for the Lord that they had to deal with it. We don't want to deal with it. Our tendency is just to kind of not want to even think about it. So I'm pulling this from the past. John Calvin, the pastor, speaks well to this. He writes, For instance, when we ask God for our daily bread, it's not that we are assured that He will send us a good harvest or a great vintage. We should leave that in His hands and patiently await what pleases Him. When we have any illness, we must rest well assured that He has not forgotten us and that we have such access to Him that in the end we will feel He has looked on us in pity. The promise of God should be fully sufficient in regards to that. However, when we would like to have the word that today or tomorrow He will restore our health, we do not know. We are even in doubt of living Or die. Calvin goes on to point out that Joab could have no absolute certainty of victory and deliverance in this Syrian Ammonite jam because he had no specific promise about that particular situation. So he concludes this way We see, therefore, that Joab's uncertainty was not lack of faith, for we can certainly doubt. Although we embrace the promises of God and hold them as absolutely certain and infallible, what we doubt are the things which are not clear to us. That is how he wants us to remain in suspense about many things and to leave it all to his secret counsel and his providence. There's a strange chemistry taking place here in our text. Taking Joab's words into our dilemmas may make us both confident and less certain. But at some point, will we not finally see that if the Lord will do what he thinks is good, that will also be what is good for his people? If Joab stirs up our faith, then we ought to say, thanks, Joab. And then humbly beneath our breath say, I should have known this. I did know this. I just didn't want to believe this. I want answers, and I want them right now. I want God to do exactly what I want him to do in this situation. this whole chapter while it's what we it's narrative in form it lacks the explanations or descriptions that we would like to have doesn't it it does they're not there the explanations are not here but there's one phrase in here that re- that recurs 5 times that take us through this narrative and help us see the pattern of what's going on so that what Joab says just kind of is like a firework display in the middle of the darkness. And so you realize that this is a beautiful, cryptic, narrative, historical passage. What do we mean? Well, you may have noticed when we went through, verse 6, 9, 14, 15, and 19, and we we read this little thing. And when so-and-so-and-so-and-so saw that, such-and-such happened. So we see it five times. And when so-and-so saw that, something happened. And what is this a picture of? Each time, it's a crisis. And then there's a reaction to that crisis. Joab's reaction to his crisis is telling. It's incredible. It should stick out because it's so different from all the others. Okay, I'm going to go through them. So you can look. Verse 6. When the Ammonites saw that they'd become a stench to David... They sent and hired the Syrians and the Syrians and all these soldiers and another king and the men of top, a huge army. So in their crisis, they made treaties and paid mercenaries. Verse 14, And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. In other words, they flee into their city. In verse 15, But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. In other words, they gather a super Syrian army. And then in verse 19, And when all the kings who were servants of Hadad-ezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. In other words, they made peace with Israel. So, verse 6, there's this crisis. The Ammonites hire Syrian mercenaries. Verse 14, another crisis. They flee into their own city. Verse 15, the Syrians gathered a super army when they were defeated by Israel the first time there. And verse 19 And when all the kings who were servants of Hadad-Ezer saw that they had been defeated, they made peace with Israel. Now compare those to Joab's reaction of faith and trust in verses 9 and then 10 and 12 in the response. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in the front and the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians, and the rest he put in the charge of Abishai's brother. So the first thing he does is he divides his troops. And then, trust that the Lord will do what the Lord thinks is best. The bottom line for Joab, for David, for us as God's people, is that the Lord will do what seems good to him. The Lord will do what he thinks is good, both for his glory and for our good. And that's it. Period. We okay with that? You okay with that? When do you, are you have a history of getting ticked at God? Anybody in here want to answer no? <laughs> we serve the risen King. And when our anger is spent against him because we don't like what has happened. What are we saying to the risen king? We are saying basically, God, you don't know what you're doing. I don't like this. I hate it. Which means right now I hate you. He wants us to get to a point where we know him well enough that even when it looks the darkest, we know that He has us. We know that the ultimate good is His glory, not ours. And that doesn't bother us. We, we rejoice in that. Only the Christian can stand in these situations with that kind of sure, certain hope because of who God is, how great He is. We're talking about the Creator. He has a bigger plan, and we can't see it because we are stuck with all these circumstances. We're so attached to this life now, and that's normal, but the Christian can look behind it to who he is and realize this has been going on since creation, and he uses every part of it. And one day we will rejoice with him in heaven, and we will see all the people that nobody even knew existed who had trusted God their whole lives, even if it was short. And they brought glory to him, and those people's voices will be loud, and we will know them because God is being honored for who he really is. Do we want to be in that company? That's the question. God can bring a rascal like Joab to that point. He can bring any of us to that point. The point is, rejoice in it. You belong to him, and that is a good thing. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, what a surprise. Chapter 10 has brought us this morning. As we look at the rest of this week leading up to celebrating the birth of Christ, which really we celebrate every day, every Sunday, but especially on the day set aside as Christmas. We not only see the down payment being paid and you sending your son to do what you'd promised to do all through history, all through the Old Testament. But we get hope and confidence in that, yeah, your plan rolls on. You've been faithful to every one of your promises and you will be faithful to the ones that apply to our future. God, thank you that you have let us know that this is not about us. This is about you and your glory, and we are part of Christ in him. So we're a part of this story of you making your name known to all creation, where that all creation will bow down before you in the end and honor you as Lord whether they want to or not, that you will win and that you do have us. And that our eternity is so glorious because of you being there, of us being able to gather together and worship you forever and ever, to get to know you better through eternity. And that blows our mind, oh God. We pray that these truths will help us walk today and tomorrow and the rest of this week. Thank you that you call us together at least once a week to worship you. What a great plan you have to remind us that we serve the King of kings. We belong to him. Oh, Lord, we pray that people who know us could see a growth and that there's something different, that Jesus is not just something we pay lip service to, but a person, your son, the King of kings, who is Lord God Almighty. And we pray that would stir us and change us. And we thank you that we can can walk together in this knowledge, growing knowledge. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? And Jesus says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall rule them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Amen. You're dismissed.